This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. I wanted to be completely transparent. So our daughter got married last year. So our son had been married for some time. And so I sat the whole family down. So my wife, my son, my daughter, daughter daughter-in-law, son-in-law, and we were completely transparent with, I guess, the wealth status of the family to the last dollar. I mean, there was no hiding. I told them how much we'd given our kids, how much we'd given our grandson, because I believe that transparency is so much better than secrecy or when you pass away, the children left to try and work out what the heck's going on. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Greg Creed, who served as the Chief Executive Officer of the Fortune 500 company Yum Brands, Inc., until December 2019, and as a director of its board from 2014 to 2020. Greg retired after a successful 25-year career with the company and now runs his own marketing and branding company. And he also serves on several boards, including Delta Airlines and Girls Inc. If you haven't heard of Yum Brands, you most certainly have heard of Pizza Hut, KFC and Taco Bell, for which Yum Brands is the parent company. Greg graduated from QUT, the Queensland University of Technology in Australia, and was awarded an honorary doctorate in 2019. Welcome, Greg. I mean, how are you? The honorary doctorate is quite funny because the only time I'm allowed to use it is when I'm, they're either writing to me or I'm on the campus. So when someone says Dr. Creed, I look around to think, well, there must be some other doctor around. So (laughs) So we can't call you that today. Well, yeah, you can call me, but I, it's just one of those weird things where I don't answer to Dr. Creed. But anyway, it was very nice of the university to bestow the honorary degree on me. So, Okay. Well, Greg, you're a marketing guy at heart. You were the chief marketing officer at Taco Bell, where you spearheaded campaigns like the Think Outside the Bun campaign, but you've always had an interest in money and finance. How yes. did you first get interested in learning about money? It's really funny. I think it was probably my dad, though there's stories that when I was very young, and if I was being rambunctious, someone would just put a bunch of coins on the floor and I would sit down there and like stack them up. So, but I, I would say, yeah, probably for my father from the earliest days, though I'm not a finance major. I didn't decide to major in finance uh, rather than marketing, but I guess there's always been a commercial aspect to my marketing even. Okay. And how about at school? Did you have some early influences there? Yeah, it's funny. When I was at school, now this is a long time ago because I'm now in my mid-60s, I think it was either two shillings or 20 cents, I can't remember what, and you would take it to school and they would like give you a a bank book, an old day like a bank book, and they would stamp, they'd take the 20 cents and they'd put the stamp in your bank book. It was the Bank of New South Wales, now become Westpac many, many years later. And so I think my parents just got me into this habit of, you know, taking 20 cents and putting it in the bank And then there was this sort of fascination with, well, what happened to it? And, you know, then obviously you go to school and you learn about this wonderful thing called compound interest. And you go, wow, this is, this is interesting. Again, not to make a career out of it, but I've always found it personally just an interesting area that I've, I've liked to focus on. 
Mm-hmm. And that's interesting you say that because I also remember putting in a couple of dollars from a very young age at school. They, the bank came to yeah. the school. Yeah. And I'm interested to know, do you still have those accounts or not? I still am a Westpac bank. I've been banking with, as I said, now obviously the bank in New South Wales became Westpac. So I guess I've probably been banking with Westpac for nearly 60 years. I have never changed banks. Yeah. I've always banked with, and now I bank in, in America, obviously, with different banks. Yeah. But the accounts I have in Australia are still with Westpac. And I have the same thing with a different bank. And so it's making me wonder, you know, the childhood habits really stick. Well, it's funny. I worked at Unilever before I worked at Yum. Hmm. So Unilever in Australia make, you know, Omo and Drive and Surf and Whisk, yeah. uh, Jif and, and Dove and stuff. And I've always used Unilever product except for one thing, Colgate toothpaste. And so I think I remember the first time I ever used toothpaste, it was Colgate. And whatever, years later, I'm still a user of Colgate toothpaste, despite the fact that I work for the opposition company. I still always use toothpaste. So I think you're right, whether it's banking or toothpaste, I think there are some things we probably just, you know, we learn at a young age and, you know, we take it through our life. Yeah. So that is a great lesson for all the parents listening to this podcast when it comes to financial literacy. So then how did you end up in the United States, Greg? Well, after university at QUT, I joined Unilever and I worked in Sydney and then London for a couple of years. In fact, our daughter was born in London. Our son was one when we went there. Then we went to New York, which was meant to be two to three years, ended up being six years. And then we left New York in 1994, came back to Australia. I joined what was, wasn't called Yum, but it, was, it is Yum, was the chief marketing officer for KFC in Australia. And then after about seven years in 2001, I got asked to come to Taco Bell back in the U.S., to help try and fix that. And here we are 22 years later and, you know, we're now both Australian and American citizens. My children are married Americans. I have an American grandson. So I I guess we're here to stay. Okay. That's good for us out here. So, you know, you mentioned your dad was such a big influence. So this is one of the things I've come to realize really just doing this podcast is how influential parents are we talk about mothers, obviously, they're very yep. influential, but fathers are critical in forming children's views and outlook on money. And, yep. you know, you have a daughter and a son. So when it comes to money, how are you taking the lessons your dad taught you? Or are you embellishing upon those? How? Yeah. What do you yeah. do? I, well, I tried to take the lessons my dad taught me. And it was interesting because in those days, my dad actually paid all the bills. So I don't, I don't know, in some families, the mum pays the bills and other families, dad pays the bills. But in our family, dad always paid the bills, which actually became a bit of an issue when, unfortunately, when he passed away, we didn't realize that a lot of things were only in dad's name. And so, you know, my mom in her 80s, we realized, you know, she just got a credit card because dad had credit cards. And we didn't realize that, again, not that it was a big issue. They'd been married almost 60 years. But he had always looked after the family finances. And in fact, it was tough on my mom who had no idea how to look after the family finances. And I was living in America, you know, went back when dad passed away a number of times that year. And my mum would get bills and she'd say, what do I do? I'm like, what do you mean, mum? What do you do? You, you <laughs> write a check or you, you put it on your credit card. She had no clue. Now, she's in her 80s. And so I think having learned that, both my dad having taught me and then having seen my mum struggle later in life, I wanted to make sure that both of my kids had a good understanding of wealth and how to look after it, how to manage it, and how to be sort of financially independent. It's funny, my grandmother, who I love, so my mum's mum, when I got married to my wife, who we've been married almost 42 years next week, said to Carolyn, you need to have your own check account. <laughs> so I was like, Grandma, that's not very nice to say about your favorite grandson. <laughs> and so even my grandma, I think, realized that 
you know, there needed to be sort of also financial independence, but also financial literacy. And so I've tried with my kids to, you know, not impose on them, but I've tried to, as they got older in particular, just, you know, share share the ups and downs and share where, you know, the financial, where the family it happens to be at this point in time and really trying to get them to take on some of the responsibilities of managing that wealth for future generations. So it's been a bit of a lifelong passion for me. Yeah, that's great because you and I had talked and, and we talked about the fact that many people don't want to give that level of transparency to their kids for whatever fear or for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, as you said. I mean, I don't have any siblings. I don't have any brothers and sisters. But I have seen both in my own family, like my dad didn't talk to one of his brothers for like 10 years because my dad lent his brother money and it was all, you know, we don't need to go into the family stories, but they didn't talk to each other for 10 years. And so even though I, I don't have siblings, I wanted to be completely transparent. So our daughter got married last year. So our son had been married for some time. And so I sat the whole family down. So my wife, my son, my daughter, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, and we were completely transparent with, I guess, the wealth status of the family to the last dollar. I mean, there was no hiding. I told them how much we'd given our kids, how much we'd given our grandson, because I believe that transparency is so much better than secrecy or when you pass away, the children left to try and work out what the heck's going on. So our financial advisor said it was pretty unusual, but I just felt that there's nothing beats transparency. It's how I used to try to run the business when I was a CEO, being completely transparent. And I just felt it was critical for the family to have a really good understanding of, you know, where we are, you know, what's happening and where our money happens to be. Yeah, that's interesting that your advisor said that's not the norm. I mean, yeah. I think that's a really wise way to run things. Yeah, his, his sort of experience, and not advice, his experience was very, very few people. I mean, we literally put everything we own and debts like taxes to be paid and all that essentially on a large spreadsheet and shared it. And he's like, yeah, you know, some people will give their families a, maybe an idea of the wealth, you know, an, an order of magnitude. And I think, you know, what's one of the things that's interesting is if you've been lucky enough like we have to sort of generate some wealth, the plan is how do you pass it down to generation to generation to generation? And so the great thing is I think my both my kids believe that that's important, right? It's not just for them to go and blow. But it's sort of like, how do we make sure that our grandchildren and then my children's grandchildren also can benefit from the luck and success that we've enjoyed? Right. And, you know, there's a whole other element. You mentioned your mum having the stresses put on her yep. when your dad passed away. So it's taking that stress off your wife and your children as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, it's funny because I was talking to my wife in preparation. So my wife's mum did all the finances in her family. Okay. But my wife has zero interest in you know, in, in sort of following the family finances. And so, as you said earlier, I think it's just like, you know, is, I'm not sure is it gender-based or is it just someone has an interest in the family? So my son has more interest than my daughter, though I would like to think I've treated my daughter and our son equally. I think it's like anything in life. Some people like some things and some people don't like them. Yeah. And so I don't think you can force people to like it. But I think when it comes to money and that, I think it's important that everyone understands where everyone stands. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's interesting because it, there is something called the gender interest gap. So yep. is there less interest within the female gender in matters of money and finance? And and I think, you know, some studies show that there is. And I can tell you anecdotally in our home, we have, uh, have son and daughters. And yep. I definitely am aware of trying to make them equally interested. 
but I have to work harder with the girls to make them interested. I know the boys talk about it. These teenage boys talk about stocks and they talk about money. And the girls don't seem to be talking about it offline as much, even though in the home we're trying to make everything equal. So I think maybe there's a role for parents to at least try and foster some interest if they can. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think you can't force someone to love something, but you can encourage someone to be interested in it. And as you said, whether it's, you know, our family happens to be the same. Our son has more interest than our daughter. Funny enough, our daughter's got an MBA, so you think she might be more interested, but <laughs> that's just not stuff that interests her. But I think what's really good is the kids, well, the kids in their mid-30s, they, I think, appreciated the transparency with which we had this discussion. In the beginning, they were a little awed about, well, you know, most other people don't tell what, you know, your children what you're worth. Mm -hmm. But I think now that we've done it and we we have a family meeting every two years now. That's the plan. Every two years, we will update the family in total transparency about what's going on. But you're right. I mean, like you, I like to think we treated our son and daughter exactly the same when it came to financial stuff. Mm. But I think our son just has more, just, I don't know why, inherent interest in it than our daughter does. So, yeah. Well, you're a fantastic role model. And I think, you know, the goal is not to turn them into investment gurus, but just to no. give Basic, just understanding compound interest, understanding debt, that's when you've done your job. No, I, I agree with you. And, you know, it's funny because at a very young age, I remember reading like the Financial Review and things like this in Australia, which would be like the Wall Street Journal here in the United States. And I just found it interesting and fascinating. And, you know, being young, we didn't have shares in those days, you know, the family didn't own stocks. But even when it came to like the 401k in the US, you know, I encouraged my kids when they first started to work to maximize how much money they put into their 401k. And now when they first started work, you know, you get paid a lot of money and they're like, well, dad, hey, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And I'm like, don't give up free money. You know, if, if you're going to put in three or 4% and the company's going to match it with, you know, 3%, I said, that's free. So do everything you can to, you know, put money in. And now it's funny, as my kids now have 401ks, they sort of, they'll say, hey, dad, look, you know, look where it's got to and this is what it's got to. And I think the other interesting thing my dad taught me was you can be more risky in the earlier parts of your life than the later parts of your life, right? So I have found that even, you know, with myself, which is when you're younger, if, you know, if you have a pot of money and you lost some of the pot of money, you still got many years to recover the pot of money. As you get older, you do become more conservative. I've definitely become more conservative because obviously what you don't want to risk is the pot. So I think that also occurs. So I've always encouraged my kids you know, if you want to invest in things or you want to do things or, you know, do it early in your life when you've still got many years to recover if it, if that investment or whatever doesn't work out so well. So we shall see. Yeah. And you're passing this down to the next generation. You spend time with your grandson too, right, Greg? Yes, I do. So, so funny. He's three and a half. So you can imagine he doesn't really understand much, but I do two things. So every, when he was both born and on every birthday, I've given him a gold coin. So that when he gets to 21, he'll have 21 gold coins. I'm not sure what they'll be worth. But the other day, he wanted some money because he sort of has a – well, so we're counting. So we're learning how to count, right? And so I said to him, you know, we were counting out the money and he wanted to take it. And I said, well, when we go to lunch, you know, we have to use this money to pay for lunch. Now, I'm pretty sure at three and a half, he doesn't quite understand what's going on. But I wanted to make it clear that, you know, you have to use the money to buy things and get things. And so we went to lunch later that day. I think he had like $3. So the bill comes and looked at him. I said, well, where's your $3? And he looked at me like, I'm not giving you my $3. He didn't say that, but yeah. he's got the look of, I'm not giving you the $3. And I'm like, now remember we had this discussion that you get money to save in your piggy bank because we always put 
a dollar or two dollars in his piggy bank when we come visit. But I said, you've also got to realize you've got to pay for things. So you don't just get all the money and keep it. So I'm pretty sure at three and a half, he's not paying any attention. But I'm not sure you can start too early in at least, you know, trying to make them aware of, you know, money doesn't, as they say, doesn't grow on trees and has consequences and needs to be managed. Well, thank you for giving us a glimpse into your family life. Now, you've spent so many years in corporate America, you know, also as a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Have you observed this gender interest gap when it comes to learning about money and finances in in the corporate world? You know, it's funny. I have actually, again, more bias to men, you know, who seem to have more interest. And even if you look at like the finance function, whilst there's now a lot of women in finance, there's the great thing is when I was started in marketing, there was a lot of guys and not many women. Now there's probably 80% of the people in marketing are women and about 20% of guys. It's still finance tends to be still male dominated. I'm not saying in every organization, I'm not saying in every company, I'm not saying, you know, or everywhere, but it tends to be more dominated. And um, it's funny because having run a big corporation where, you, you know, you, I think sales were, I don't know, when I left 45, 50 billion dollars US, it's a lot of money, right? And you, it's sort of like you deal with, millions and millions and millions of dollars a day and then you go home and you balance the checkbook once a week it's quite it's quite humbling to sort of realize you know i think something like if we wanted to spend more than 40 40 million or 45 million i had to sign for it and so if something crosses your desk and you just grab your pen and you just you know oh yeah 45 million i you know i remember this deal it's a great deal we're going to do it and then you go home and you go did someone write check number one two four five in the checkbook because i can't find it right so there is all this sort of humbling. I, I always used to say the only difference between work life and home life was the number of zeros. Yeah. But even at work, I paid a – like marketing people tend to have a reputation for not being very fiscally or financially either capable or responsible. But I always prided myself, you know, sort of knowing the math around the finances of being a brand manager. I think it stood me in good stead because I think, you know, the finance people see the marketing people and they think, well, here come all the right brain, arty, arty, crafty people, but they're not that commercial. And one of the greatest compliments, the guy who succeeded me at Yum said he called me the human calculator. Okay. And as a marketer, I was like deliriously happy that he would call me the human calculator. And then I'm on the Aramark board and I now chair the finance committee. And, you know, it, it's quite interesting that here's a marketer, you know, chairing a finance committee on a big, as you said, Fortune 500 company. So I don't think you can ever, having good commercial sense, no matter what part of an organization you're in, I think does help. Yes. And and I've heard that from a lot of my guests, a lot of women who've reached, you know, C-suite level positions and having minimum a basic knowledge of finance money is just so important, doesn't matter what your role is. Yeah. I think also it's good sometimes to put your hands up. I was, I was sitting in a meeting many years ago. And one of the guys at Yum was talking about acquiring this business in Russia called Rostix. Funny enough, now we had to sell it back to Rostix because of what's going on in, you know, in Ukraine. And I sat in this meeting and I was in awe of this guy's financial acumen. I was like, well, I'm creative, but I'm creative in this area. I'm not creative financially. And so I went to my boss who, you know, who I eventually succeeded and said, you know, I need to get better at this. So he sent me off to Stanford. I went, I went on like a 10-day living. I called it, you know, finance for marketing dummies. That's what that obviously wasn't what it was called. Because I realized that I had a certain level of commercial sense, but I needed a greater sense if I was to play a larger role in the organization. So I also think you can never stop learning. And that to me was just a classic case of where I recognized for myself to become a bigger leader, 
I needed to be creative in the financial area, not just creative in the sort of the classic brand building area. I was really lucky that my boss at the time, you know, sent me off and I did this 10-day course and it was really empowering. And, you know, power is knowledge, right? So again, even for people who are listening, you know, if you feel like you don't have it, you know, go off and do it. I'll give you another great example. I'm on the board of Delta, as you said. So we have a program. And as you know, a lot of Americans, you know, I think, what is it, 40% of people would struggle if, with an unexpected $400 bill. Yeah. So what's really exciting is what Delta have done is that if you put in $250 of your own money, Delta will match that with $750. But the catch is you have to go off and do an online financial, you know, course. And I think that's fantastic, right? Which is they're doing two things. They're improving your financial literacy, which is really important because we get taught calculus in school, but we don't get taught financial literacy. And at the same time, as a, as a great organization, they're contributing you to having a sort of rainy day fund. But you don't get the rainy day fund unless you complete the online you know, financial course. And I, when I first heard about this, I was like, I'm just so impressed that an organization of 90,000 people at Delta Airlines you know, is involved in what I think is helping people for a rainy day and at the same time, dramatically improving their financial literacy. Yeah, I think that's incredible because it's the old example of you're teaching people how to fish, not just giving them. Yeah, it's like the old hand, was it a hand up, not a hand out? Yes. Just, you could easily give money, but if yeah. you don't improve, you know, if you don't improve people's understanding, then they may not necessarily know how to even use the money. So I'm really proud of what Delta does in that area. Yeah, and how empowering is that as well? It's so empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, from your perspective, you've seen everything, you've lived everywhere. Yep. Why do you see financial literacy as being so important in today's world? I think it's so important because in some sense, it's got more complicated, right? It's got more complex. In another sense, there is things like what I call free money, you know, the 401k match. It's never sold as free money because that would probably be illegal. But, you know, if you try to keep things simple. And I also think at the end of the day, you know, it's interesting. I read the Sydney Morning Herald online every day and there's a lot of discussion about, you know, millennials and younger people these days needing the bank of mum and dad. But I'm not sure they realize that one day they maybe have to help their mum and dad when they get, you know, later on in life. And so ultimately, you know, it is a capitalist society. It all comes down to money. And I think just there's a great quote, which is something like, the great thing about money is, you know, you can worry about other things besides money. And I think that there's a lot of people who unfortunately, you know, do worry about money, partly their circumstance and partly their circumstance and education or around around money. And so they spend a disproportionate amount of their time worrying about it and thinking about it, and rightfully so. Whereas I think if if we could make people more financially literate and maybe, you know, understand like I remember being 25 and being asked to go to a pension, you know, uh, lunch and learn pension thing. I'm like, why the heck would I go to a pension lunch and learn when I'm 25? Well, now I'm 65 and you go, you know what? I'm actually glad I went to that pension thing because, you know, time has this way of you know, of catching up. So I just think that at the end of the day, you know, it, it's a democracy. They're both, you know, Australia, the US, but they, the world runs on money. And I think the more comfortable you are with it, the more you understand it, the better the decisions that you'll make for yourself, for your family, for your friends and everything else. So I think it's about easing your mind to think about other things than worrying about money. Yeah, and actually studies are now showing that financial literacy is actually linked to physical well-being because people spend inordinate amount of time worrying about it. I think it's a bit like, I think financial literacy is a lot like riding a bike or skiing or whatever, which is the earlier in life you learn it, 
the easier it is. So, you know, I haven't ridden a bike for a long time, but I'm pretty sure I could get on a bike and ride it. I wouldn't want to learn to ride a bike now. I haven't, I've probably skied about six times in my life. So I'm hardly going to get on a pair of skis can probably hurt myself. So I think it is a bit, you know, the earlier you can start with your kids, with family, and, the, and I think hopefully the more we could do it in schools or organizations like Delta who do it, I think the, you know, the earlier we learn it and not to be consumed by it. This is not about life is all about how much money you get because that's not the point. But I think, as you said, I'm sure, you know, mental well-being and physical well-being are much easier if you're not worried about money. Finally, Greg, what advice do you have for parents raising girls in today's world? Whoa, keep them off social media. Other than that. <laughs> other, other than the impossible. No, I think it's, you can't force kids to do anything. You can't force them to like anything. I think if you can make it a game or you can make it enjoyable, and I think there's a lot of places, even in schools now, where they give kids 10000 or 100000 of pretend money. And maybe, you know, I know gamification and video games and, and kids love it, both boys and girls. But I think if you can make it fun rather than, oh, my God, my dad wants me to do this because he's really into it and I'm not, I think there's a greater chance that girls and boys, but maybe girls will just find it interesting. And so, you know, let's make it fun rather than let's make it feel like you've been put in detention and then I think it's just every opportunity. It's funny, even today, you know, my daughter and her husband, uh, son-in-law who we love, they're looking at houses. They've got a house, but they're thinking, you know, do they trade up? And so we had a discussion today about interest rates and property taxes and, and all that sort of stuff. And, so, you know, just trying to even now, you know, my daughter's 35 with, a, with her MBA. I sort of still feel like as dad, it's my job to help her and her husband think through it, not to make the decision, not to tell them what to do. And it's fact, so I actually, I wrote out a couple of spreadsheets, for, which I took my wife through and I said, next time I see Lauren, I'm going to take her through this, right? So I think as, as parents, you can never give up. And I think as well as it, mothers and sons have special relationships and fathers and daughters have special relationships. So I guess I feel a special, you know, not need, I, just a special need to basically help make sure that, you know, Lauren and Jared make the best decision, not make decisions for them. But just, you know, help them in, in these sort of areas. Because let's be honest, my first our first house, well, our first apartment cost forty three thousand dollars and our first house was seventy three thousand dollars. And, you know, there's a lot more zeros these days these kids have to deal with. So I think you never stop being a parent, right? Never stop being a father to your daughter or your son. That's right. Your family's so lucky to have you, Greg. Thank you so much, Greg Creed, for your time today. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com. Hold up. 